You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Good evening. I apologize that last week the uh, recording didn't work out. So hopefully we'll try again this week. We'll have a recording for those that were missing today. So you'll be able to have the recording. Just a quick where we're up to. Last week we discussed about some of the basics about God. Who and what God is and isn't. Where he is how he came to be, whether it's a he, she, or it, non-binary, non-gender, or has a gender. And today we probably, we can talk about last week, we filled out our questionnaire about God. This week we're going to turn the page of the questionnaire, and we're going to learn some more information about God, and we're going to talk about more about his tendencies, his nature, the basics of how God operates. What is a God all about? What kind of, we're going to discuss today, and as we mentioned in every class, we go through about five different questions. So it's, if you want to call it five mini-classes, we're going to talk about today, does God have feelings? Does God communicate with human beings? Does God act illogically? Why does God have so many names? And what's up with the hyphenated name in God? Those are our five questions for today, and that's what we're going to focus on for today. We're going to start with the first one. Does God have feelings? Being that we're asking, does God have feelings, how do you feel about this question? You feel good about it. Okay. Do you think it's relevant if God has feelings or not? Yeah, I do. Okay, why do you think it's relevant? Okay. <laughs> Give him some melatonin. Does he know that I feel bad? Okay. So you're not the only one. For many people, the question is quite significant because emotions and feelings are probably the most crucial element in any relationship. If we are having a relationship with God, and that's what we spoke about last week, and in general we know that we have a relationship with God, and God calls us his spouse, then shouldn't he have feelings? Shouldn't we know if he has feelings? Yes. And if God has no feelings, how can I have a relationship with God? Do we even matter? Then? So does God have feelings or doesn't he have feelings? So let's put aside our feelings about the question <laughs> and look at it from a more rational perspective. Okay. And let's try to look at it from objectively to examine the different sources and resources that we have to be able to see does God have feelings or not. Based on what we learned from last week, quoting the Zohar, that God is pshut, pashut, which means simple, not complex. One would say, if, and as we mentioned, that God is not complex, meaning that simple, that means simple in a positive way. One would suggest and say that God probably does not have feelings, because feelings makes you complex. Sometimes like this and sometimes like this. So let's see what Maimonides, one of the foremost philosophers, had to say about it. If God has feelings. Text number one. Page 38. God experiences neither anger nor laughter, neither joy nor sadness. God says, I, have, I and God have not changed. Quoting Malachi. Now were he, he to be at, at times enraged and times elated, he would experience change. Rather, all these emotions are experienced only by those who inhabit bodies 
Those are corporal and therefore spirituality, dark and lowly. Spiritually dark and lowly. Who dwell in the houses of clay and whose foundation is the dust of the earth. By contrast, the blessed one be he is elevated and exalted beyond all this. Reading this passage of Maimonides, what do you deduce? That seemingly that God has no feelings. Not only that, people or entities that do have feelings, what does the Maimonides call them? Houses of clay. Why can't God have feelings according to Maimonides? So let's recap over here. Number one, because feelings are definable. If I say a person has feelings, I say he's sad, he's happy. I'm putting you into a certain definition that at this moment you're excited, this moment you're sad. The moment I tell you you have feelings, I'm defining a certain attribute, I'm defining a certain individual. God defies all definitions. Another reason, feelings imply fluctuation. I'm sometimes happy, sometimes not that happy. Sometimes sad, sometimes not sad. I'm sometimes excited, elated, whatever it may be. God is above any type of fluctuation. So to be able to say that God has feelings would be in a way sort of limiting God. And God is beyond it. God is transcendent. God is not something which is limited. But as you already know from coming to all these classes, nothing is as simple as stated. And because we just quoted Maimonides, just tells us that we have to look someplace else to find a different opinion. So let's look at the following verse, which seemingly has a different perspective than Maimonides. Text number 2, page 39. I will speak of God's kindness, God's praise for all that he has bestowed upon us. Abundant of good for the house of Israel provided in accordance with his compassion and great kindness. God said, Surely there my nation children will be true to me. And because and he became their deliverer. In all their distress, he was distressed. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He bore and carried them for all eternity. This is a quote of Isaiah. If you look at those three verses, how many emotions can you count there? How many different feelings can you ascribe to God? Okay, let's name them. He begins the first one, God's kindness. What else do you have here? Compassion, distress, love, mercy. Those all seem like feelings to me. So if I read this passage, it seems to me that God has feelings. All the different feelings that are mentioned, A, in this passage of Isaiah, and then in many other passages of the Torah, there are both positive feelings and negative feelings. So which one is it? Does God have feelings or doesn't he have feelings? Seemingly for Maimonides, it seems like if I say that God has feelings, I'm limiting God. But Isaiah seems to like and say that God does have feelings. Yes? One of the big things that, you know, it's like you follow the rules because you don't want to anger God. So that's a feeling. There you go. So you just ask, so so you're intensifying the question. Where do we find the terminology of angering God? Is in the Torah. Yeah. Right? So it seems like the verses clearly state that God has feelings. But like we explained, in order to understand God to the best of our abilities, because we explained that we can't understand everything of God, we can only know about God, we need to deconstruct before we construct. We need to get to the no, but the yes. So we know that in everything about God, there is a no, but then there's also a yes. 
And last week we spoke about, for example, did we say if God is gendered? Then we said, no, he's not gendered, but yes, he is gendered. The same idea we're going to look at today. Why do we as human beings have feelings? What is it? We're dynamic. We're affected by our surroundings. I get excited about something, I'm happy about it. I get upset about something, I'm sad about it. Our feelings cause us to be able to change by the experiences and the interactions that we have. God, on the other hand, is not affected by his experiences. God is eternal, unchanging. He's not affected by anything. And certainly not by what's going on in the world that he created. So therefore, God on his own has no feelings. God chooses to relate to the world with feelings. What that tells us here is that God has two types of modalities. The way God is for himself, he's unaffected, he doesn't change, he's transcended, nothing makes a difference to him. But the way God relates to the world, he definitely has feelings. For example, Rabbi Chaim Vital, the great student of the Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Kabbalist, one of the basic foremost teachers of Kabbalah, teaches us very basic understanding in Kabbalah is as follows. Text number three. The world that was created with seven divine attributes, beginning with chesed, kindness. They are, uh, they are kindness, discipline, compassion, preserve, perseverance, humility, connection, sovereignty. The role of the divine attributes in creation is alluded to the verse, I declared, let the world will be with, built with kindness. The first and primary uh, emotion and feeling of God was kindness. And not only that, what is kindness? Kindness or feelings, emotions, these seven states, these seven emotive type of sefirot, as it's called in Kabbalah, are what the world was created with. That means, if not for God's feelings, the world wouldn't exist. So does God have feelings? Or to be, or to be more precise, Notwithstanding God's transcendent simplicity, which means that God should not have feelings, he chooses to relate to this world with feelings. He rejoices in our joys. He cries for our sadness. As Isaiah said, he's there with our suffering. Why is that? Because the very knowledge that we know that God chooses to lower himself, if you want to call it, to feel what we're going through is the most empowering and comforting, comforting thing that we can have for ourselves. If we think about it, God is infinite, correct? And therefore, because God is infinite, he has the possibilities to be able to be finite. The same God that's infinite, part of it is that he has the ability to be able to be infinite, infinite and finite at the same time. But what we're saying over here is just as God is infinite, so too are his attributes infinite. And this means that God loves and cares for us infinitely. So when God decides to put himself in a modality to care, to have feelings, what happens now? Those feelings become infinite. But it goes even further. Not only does God's feelings have infinite relationship to us and connect with us completely, but also we have the ability to affect God's feelings. And listen to Rabbi Levi Yitzchak of Barthesheth, text number four. 
It is God's way to provide goodness to his creations. In some cases, this goodness is entirely a divine initiative. And in other cases, it is triggered by a human initiative. When we improve our conduct, our actions, cause divine compassion to come upon us. This is the significance of the word, God is your shadow, Hashem Tzilcha, from Psalm 121. As per the teachings of the Baal Shem Tov, that God acts like our shadow in the sense that he reflects our conduct. As our shadow does, does precisely what we do, so does heaven's conduct towards us mirror our own conduct. If we act compassionately, God treats us with compassion. As our sages taught, whoever shows compassion to those God created will receive divine compassion in return. We must therefore conduct ourselves with compassion and goodness and with all the other positive traits and rejoice in the lot in us that God will reciprocate in kind. What did God do? When God created the universe, he programmed it in a way that we should have access to God's feelings. Is God transcendent? Absolutely. But he also created a modality that we should be able to tap into God's feelings when he, makes it, when he wants to have feelings. And how do we inspire God's feelings? When we act accordingly. As the Talmud says, Just like he is merciful, you should be merciful. Just like he is righteous, you should be righteous. When we act in a way of righteous or kind or whatever feeling that we have, we automatically bring about a reaction from God to be able to have reciprocating kind to us and that kind of feeling as well. The Baal Shem Tov explains it on the verse Hashem Tzilcha, which means God, literally means God is your shade. That means He's protecting you. But He also comes from the word your shadow. And He says the same way when you lift your hand in the shadow, the shadow lifts its hand as well. He so too, He says, God is your shadow. Whatever you do, God is mimicking you, copying you. He's there behind you. So that whatever you do, you elicit by God's feelings. So the feeling that you have, that's why you already bring about a greater feeling as well. For that reason, just a moment, you have also the concept that's brought in the Talmud and it's brought in the prophets, that the prophets, in order that for them to hear prophecy, as we're soon going to talk about prophecy, they had to be joyful. Because they, when they were joyful, God was joyful and then shared with them joyful things. Yes? So that, that's the basis of power, right? <clears throat> Correct. In fact, in many of the places where it talks about stock of giving charity, and one of the reasons why there's a custom that we give charity before we pray, because you're about to pray for something for yourself. You want God to be righteous for you. So when you are righteous to somebody else, God will then be righteous for you. There's also another idea. When you pray for somebody else, God answers your prayers. What you need first. We find that by Isaac and Rebecca. That's because you have a special power, but that's a separate thing. But in general, if it says if a person is in need of something and his friend is in need of something, you pray for the other person and God will then answer your prayers. Why? Because you're eliciting mercy for that individual and therefore God elicits mercy for you. So you have this idea where we talk about God's feelings. So we have over here, let's just to summarize, the understanding what God is about. Whoever shows compassion for those whom God has created will receive divine compassion in return. So does God have feelings? Just to summarize what we have, God essentially transcends feelings. So the answer is no, but yes, he chooses to relate to his creation with emotions. So God in the transcendent form absolutely has no feelings, as my man says, because having feelings would mean that he changes and God doesn't change and is not affected by the world. But then God also has the ability to choose 
to relate to his creations with feelings, and therefore he created the world in those seven attributes, because that we can also elicit feelings, to be able to connect infinitely with feelings to God. So, let's go to our next question. Does God communicate with human beings? So there's once the story about a couple comes to the marriage counselor after 25 years of marriage, and they're sitting in front of the marriage counselor, and the therapist asks them and says, so what brings you here today? The woman begins and says, listen, my husband never tells me that he loves me. The marriage counselor, the therapist, turns to the husband and says, is that true? The husband then turns to his wife and says, honey, when we got married 25 years ago, I told you I love you. If anything changes, I'll let you know. (laughs) We all know that one of the key things in a relationship, and most important common element of a relationship, is communication. Without communication, everything goes haywire. And if we're in a relationship with God, as we know, as we spoke about and we continue to discuss, then we need to have communication. And therefore, if our question is, Does God communicate with us? The answer should be absolutely yes, if we're in a relationship. We know we communicate with God. We pray three times a day. We have all the different things. We say Psalms, all the different things that we can communicate with God. The question is, does God communicate with us? Though we we communicate with prayer, but does God communicate with us? According to Jewish belief, the answer is yes, in every shape of the form. God's communication to us takes place in many different forms. And it all started with a mass communication. Mass communication at Mount Sinai. Interesting to note, just on a little side note, Judaism is the only religion who attests and believes that God communicated with every single Jew. In other religions... It was one individual heard it, one individual was the prophet for it, or many people heard it, but then they died and only one person survived. The only religion, and that's why, if you want to call it scientifically even, the only religion that believes that God spoke to every single one of us at Sinai is Judaism. Three million people heard God speak, they told it to their children, they told it to their children, and that's how we know it today. It wasn't one person, Moses, but every single Jew standing by Mount Sinai heard God speak to them. Moses in the book of Deuteronomy reminds the Jewish people of that episode. Text number five. Ask now regarding the early days that you were before you, since the day that God created human beings upon the earth and inquire from every people, from one of the heavens and the other of the end of the heavens to determine. Was there ever an event of this magnitude? Has anything been similar to what you heard previously? Did ever a people hear God's voice speaking out in the midst of the fire as you have heard and remain alive. So about 3,300 years ago, God appeared before the entire nation. Millions of people, men, women, and children, all heard the word of God. The Ten Commandments, the first two commandments from God himself without any person in between. An event that has no precedent before it and nothing after it. Never repeated since. Do we know if there was like a literal thing like if you were standing there you heard him or was it communicating in some other way? Okay, we're going to get to that in just a moment. Okay. Good so question. 
Well, yes. Well, that doesn't mean that it was the voice. It says there was a thunder. There was a lightning. They saw the light. They saw the thunder and heard the lightning. That was a lot of different events that happened. There was no echo. But what exactly is hearing God's voice? We'll get to in a moment. So on that occasion, the Jewish people heard the Ten Commandments. Then God spoke to the Jewish people through Moses. The written law that we have today was dictated by God to Moses, then transcribed and given to the Jewish people multiple times, first taught to Aaron and his sons, then to the elders and to all the Jews four times until every single Jew got the word of God. The same applies then when the Jewish people got the oral law. With the written law that was dictated by Moses, was dictated by God to Moses, came the commentary and the interpretations. For example, how do we know that filling our black, or that a mezuzah means a scroll put it on the door, and many other laws that we do today are laws that were orally transmitted from Moses to the elders to the prophets to every generation until today that's put into code Jewish law. So there was the way God transmitted the Torah to the Jewish people was God speaking to the Jewish people. First there was this mass communication and then there was the interpersonal, so to speak, first through Moses, writing it in the Torah through the sages and so on and so forth. Some eight centuries ago, Maimonides, as we mentioned before, was one of the most Jewish philosophers of his time and of all time. And he was able to take from the entire teachings of the Torah 13 principles and he put in his introduction to the Mishnayis in his commentary of the Mishnah. He distilled from it 13 principles of faith, 13 foundations. His eighth principle is as follows. Text number six. The eighth principle, the Torah is from heaven. We believe that this Torah that we currently possess is that which was given to us through Moses and its entirety from the mouth of the Almighty. Meaning that it all came from Moses, blessed be he. Maimonides continues to say that this that we have from Moses is not only the written law, but is also the oral law. All the communications that we have, and all the mitzvot that we have, and how we do the mitzvahs, whether it's the mitzvah of shofar, tzitzis, reading from the Torah, tzvillam, azuzah, you name the mitzvah, how do we know how we observe the mitzvah? That is the oral law. The written law just writes what the mitzvah is. For example, eat matzah. What's a matzah? Put up a mitzvah, put up a mitzvah, write it on your doorpost. What do I write on my doorpost? Do I get spray paint and put something on my doorpost and say what we are when and how? The oral law who explains and constructs those mitzvahs are part of that communication that God gave the Jewish people. And that he conveyed to Moses and then Moses passed on to generations. That's one form of communication that God has. We'll call it public communication. But then there are also private communications, personal communications. In addition to that one-time revelation that happened that every Jew heard God at Mount Sinai, we also believe that there are individuals of great stature who hear prophecy. What does it mean they hear prophecy? We'll get to in a moment. But let's see, text number seven. Maimonides puts it, one of his principles as well. One of the foundations of our faith is that the awareness that God confers prophecy on humans. And Maimonides goes on to explain that when a person reaches an exalted spiritual status, perfects his mind and heart, thought and speech and actions, when a person has that ability that he's completely refined in a spiritual status, he is then able to reach a level where God can give him prophecy. Now prophecy in the time of the first temple era was something which was common. In fact, it says that when they would dance, 
by the Simchas Beis HaShoeva, they were danced by the drawing of the water, the celebration of pouring the water on Sukkot. There were many that got prophecy. In fact, one of the famous prophets that we read about the story of Jonah on Yom Kippur received this prophecy on Sukkot by Simchas Beis HaShoeva. In the book of Samuel, when King Saul wasn't sure that he was going to be the one to be the king, Samuel tells him, you will walk up the hill and you'll see a group of prophets there. So it was a common phenomenon that people who had a spiritual refinement were able to attain a level of prophecy. With the destruction of the first temple, one of the things that our sages tell us was the prophecy was then taken away. Taken away from the common folk. So it wasn't anymore something which was so common. But there is an idea of prophecy, which prophecy was, number one, prophecy was sometimes giving communal messages. Like Isaiah, Samuel, Nathan, Hezekiel, Jeremiah, there are 48 different prophets. You look in the back of the book, there's a list of 48 prophets and seven prophetists. There were different women prophets, for example, Devorah, Miriam, and so on, Esther, Huldah. These were different prophets, women that were prophets, and then there were also 48 men that were prophets. And they were generally, these prophets that are enumerated there, they were prophets of communal prophecies. There were then individuals that are not enumerated that just had prophecy for their own spiritual significance, meaning personal message of how they bettered their life, how they were able to reach a level of spirituality, and, and so on and so forth. But what we find unique over here is that Maimonides, when he talks about the laws of prophecy, he includes the principle of prophecy as an intuitive principle in belief in God. And the question is, why is prophecy something that helps me believe in God? Or not helps me, why is prophecy something in part and parcel of my belief in God? Why can't I say prophecy is a secondary? Why is that part of my belief in God? Why is my belief in God contingent on the very fact that God has prophets as well? That's the way Maimonides makes it. It's a principle cardinal belief in God. And one of them is that God communicates with individuals and low human beings. Seemingly, why would God speak to you human beings? What is the notion of prophecy? When we talk about God communicating with human beings, doesn't it imply that God is earthly if he talks to human beings? Doesn't it imply that God lowers himself from his celestial chambers up there to talk to us mortals? But in fact, it's the opposite. Why is it the opposite? But take this example. Imagine for a moment, you have Einstein. He's giving this unbelievable class to a bunch of physicists who their IQ is like 100 and beyond. And they're just talking about things which the average person got no clue what they're talking about. And then in walks a second grader who just learned 2 plus 2, or just learned 2 times 2, whatever it may be. Einstein stops his class and starts explaining the matter to the second grader, on the second grader's level. Does that make Einstein a greater professor or less of a professor? Greater. Because the very fact that he can lower himself to the level of a second grader and explain that idea as well makes him a greater person. I think there's a sign if you drive down uh, Wellwood Avenue. Wellwood Avenue and uh, in Huntington, in, you know, by the cemeteries over there, there's a big billboard. It says, you never stand so tall when you reach down to a child or something like that. You ever saw that one? Yeah. I made that sign. Huh? I made that sign. You, what do you mean you made it? I used to 
sign. Oh, okay. <laughs> I see it all the time, so that's okay. But that was the... No, okay. I don't know if it's from a Jewish source, but whatever it is. But the bottom line is the concept is you don't become smaller, or you know, it doesn't say less of yourself when you explain something to somebody of a lower stature. In fact, it makes you greater. It says, for example, one of the great qualities of Moshiach is that he's going to be able to teach the people like Moses and us like simple people as well. So what does it tell us about God? That God is able to talk to us simpletons. There's similarly the same fact, the same idea that God communicates with humanity tells us something profound. That the very same God that transcends all transcendence and is not bound by any limits doesn't only hang out with the angels but also says, you the little human being, I'll talk to you as well. Why is it part of our belief in God? Because what did the Egyptians believe? What did the pagans believe before the Torah was given? That God is way up high. He can't talk to us simple people. Therefore, they had multiple idols. Idol for this and idol for that and idol for this. Why did they have multiple idols? Because they said God's all up in the sky and therefore he appointed these little guys to take care of us little people. The sun was for the light, the moon was for the dark, and all the different things. But God himself is way above and beyond. And therefore, Maimonides comes along and says, part of the belief in God is to know that God talks to humans. That even though he's transcendent of all transcendence, he still can come down and talk to us mortals. That's, that's in the Amidah, right? Where it says, um, who bestows knowledge. He bestows knowledge. It doesn't say it that he talks. But the concept that he talks to the human being, he communicates with the human being, that is telling us the greatness of God. The greatness of God that he can still, that we have a direct line to God, a direct communication. That God doesn't say, I need this little statue, or I need the star, or I need the moon. Every single thing, and even talking to the people here, and that's why Maimonides says, this is all part of our understanding of our belief in God. And therefore, it's so fundamental that it becomes part of our belief in God, because our belief in God means that He communicates to every single one, He doesn't have anybody in between. So now that we've explored the philosophical side of it, Let's analyze this question a little more personal. So we said that God communicates with us through prophets, through Moses, mass communication 3,300 years ago. But I got to tell you, I'm not a prophet. I don't know if you knew that, but I'm just letting you know, I'm not a prophet. (laughs) And therefore, at least with me, God doesn't share with me any prophecies. So the question is, are we, simple people like me, privy to any communication with God? Or is it only for special people? What do you say? I think each of us are privy to communication with Hashem. Okay. So let's find out. Have any of you ever sensed God speaking to you? Yeah. Communicating? In what way? Oh, it's a long story. Okay, so then we'll... It's a really long story, <laughs> but yeah... So let's, before we go there, let's broaden our image of what God's communication can look like. And that was your question before. We, many, we discussed many times that one of the problems is that we have these images. God is big man in the sky. We're all these different types of images that we create. And therefore we have to deconstruct, so to speak, of what communication actually means. We're accustomed to thinking that communication means this booming voice coming 
And all of a sudden, wow, you jump out of your guts and whatever's going to happen. Most of the prophets that received communication from God never even heard a voice. Never even heard a voice. And therefore, the communication that God gives us is not something that you may look like some guy that took some type of narcotic or anything of that kind. But imagine this. Have you ever met, felt, once in the middle of the day, out of nowhere, an urge, a desire to be better, to do something that you didn't do yesterday, to be able to feel some type of connection, out of nowhere? Have you ever felt that all of a sudden, maybe I should do something, get rid of an unhealthy habit, Maybe I should start doing something better. Maybe I should call my mother that I haven't spoken to or my dad that I haven't saw or my brother that I haven't listened to. Have you ever had such impulses? Sometimes. Where do those impulses come from? Ethics of our father says something fascinating. It says as follows. Each day, the heavenly voice, text number 8-8, issues from Mount Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, and proclaims, Woe to the creatures who insult the Torah. Now, interesting passage, right? The Baal Shem Tov read this passage and asked the obvious question. If every single day there's an announcement coming out of Mount Sinai, have any of you heard it? Have you heard a recording from it? I understand maybe you were never in the Sinai desert. But don't you think you would hear a recording of it? Maybe somebody would today with YouTube, maybe somebody recorded it. No, never heard it. At least I never heard it. So Baal Shem Tov asked that question. Nobody's ever heard it. And the Baal Shem Tov asks a very obvious question. Even if you want to say it's a spiritual voice, if nobody's ever heard it, then what's the point of it going out? And if you can't hear it because it's spiritual, what's the point of it making that noise? And the Baal Shem Tov says as follows. Text number 8b. Our sages state that a daily divine announcement warns against the shaming of the Torah. But if the proclamation remains unheard, what purpose can it possibly serve? We cannot suggest that this announcement is audible to the human ear, because that would contradict our own experience. Who can claim to hear heaven's proclamation? And which fool would believe individuals who claim they do? You know, they used to say, everybody can talk to God, but when you think God's talking to you, you belong in a Meshagoyim ways, right? (laughs) Who can claim to hear heaven's proclamations? And which fool would believe individuals who claim they do, instead of labeling them as false prophets? Therefore, if the announcement cannot affect positive change, what is the benefit of the issuance? However, this announcement does not involve actual words, for speech is a physical phenomenon, and there is no physical verbalization, nor there is an audible sound in heaven. Rather, the announcement is issued in the dimension of thought. These thoughts travel to the human on a daily basis and translate into seemingly spontaneous thoughts of repentance that are actually caused by the daily divine proclamation. The Baal Shem Tov gives us here a fascinating answer. Do you know what that communication is that God gives every single one of us? When you consider that the very fact that you all of a sudden have that subconscious layer of yourself and all of a sudden you stir and you have something within your soul telling you, maybe I should go to shul today. What mitzvah should I do today? What kind of thing didn't I do yesterday? How can I become better today? What should I do to help the person around me? All of a sudden, that sudden feeling and need to improve, you know what that comes from? It's not an unexpected random thing that happened, but actually 
It is a voice that is emanating from Mount Sinai saying, Come on, get with it. Don't let another day go by. And all of a sudden your soul is that antenna that it's attracting those radio waves of the voice that God is coming and talking to you. It's only a question, do we have good reception? Are we allowing, are we turning our radios on to be able to accept it? Or are we just ignoring all of that? You know, if you look outside, you can see if you were able to have a scanner and you turn it on, you hear all the channels, everything going on. But what do we do? We turn off the scanner. We don't want to hear what's going on. We're afraid we might have to change. We might get affected by it. And this idea that we find, the Rebbe once wrote to a woman who was asking how she can she find personal guidance from God. The Rebbe responded in a short handwritten response and the Rebbe said the following words. God speaks directly to your soul and these communications are behind your good resolution. Every good resolution that you take, every step that you understand and you feel a need to improve, it's not random. It's there because God is communicating with you. So while this may not be in the form of a prophecy, because you're not, so to speak, recognizing and realizing that it's from God, that was the difference between the prophets and a regular person. And it may not be on the greatest spiritual level like a prophet, but God is very much communicating with us. It's only up to us to be mindful to listen to those messages. So back to your question. What happened by Mount Sinai? Did they hear a booming voice? Yes, there was a booming voice. Was the booming voice the word that the, the, loud, the word of God? Was it the mouth, so to speak, of God speaking? The Torah uses metaphoric type of words. But there was some type of event that was out of the box, an out-of-life experience that the Jewish people experienced at the time. Was it necessarily that they heard a voice, a physical voice? Maybe not. You know, today many people sometimes have something called an out-of-life experience even while they're awake or there's some type of transitioning time. Maybe that's what they went through. We don't know exactly. But there was a communication that was deep enough that they felt the need to tell it to their children. And that the children told it to their children, and children told it to their children, we know it today. That same communication is what the prophets have. That same communication is what we have, and that's the way God communicates with every single one of us. When we resolve, when we have that impulse to all of a sudden do something, I know you like to give yourself good credit, but it's God talking to you. Here's a little uh, one that the Rebbe gives an example for this boy who is becoming Bar Mitzvah.
but he didn't have to worry. When the Rebbe turned to Dan, he didn't ask a thing about his studies. In fact, his question was one that Danny never dreamt of hearing from the Torah sage. The Rebbe asked, Are you a baseball fan? Danny nodded enthusiastically. So the Rebbe took it further. Are you a fan of the Yankees or the Dodgers? Danny was most surprised. But hey, these were questions he could easily answer. He was a proud Dodgers fan. But the Rebbe was not done. How was the last game you attended? Disappointing, Danny confessed. By the sixth inning, the Dodgers were losing 9-2, so he left. The Rebbe nodded. Tell me, did the players also leave the game when you did? Of course not, Rabbi, Danny exclaimed. Players can't leave in the middle of a game. Why not, smiled the Rebbe. How does that work? Well, Rabbi, there are fans, like me and my dad. We just watch the game. And there are the players who actually play the game. We can leave whenever we want, but players have to continue trying to win the game until it is over. The Rebbe was waiting for this moment. That's the lesson you should take for your life as a responsible Jew, he gently advised. You can either be a fan or a player. Be a player. Well, Danny left that meeting with a new sense of purpose. He no longer viewed his bar mitzvah as a routine nod to an ancient tradition. No, it would be the starting pitch in a lifelong game he would play to win. Again, we see over here a primary example of taking something in the world that we see and every single thing of it, using it to apply it and give us a lesson. Though, we still have a question. Why doesn't God choose to communicate with us in a direct manner? Why does it have to be in this sub, you know, this indirect way that we should have to figure it out and say maybe it's an impulse, maybe I should, maybe I shouldn't. Why can't just God communicate with us directly and tell, go, do what you got to do? What would you think the problem would be? Overwhelming. Overwhelming? Exciting. Because imagine God comes and tells you to do it. It wouldn't be easy not to do the right thing. If God is telling you to do something and you hear it from God himself, you don't left with much of a choice. It will take away people's freedom of choice. And therefore, what God wants from us is, God wants us to put the effort into it. God wants us to listen in. God wants us to see that He's talking to us. He doesn't just want us to have a pie from the sky and all of a sudden, do because I said. Make the choice. Do the effort in listening to God's words and recognize that you are being spoken to. You're being spoken to. You are communicating and God is communicating with you. So to answer our question, just to recap, does God communicate with human beings? Yes, He does. Through the prophets, through the Torah, and even us, subliminally, when we have those impulses to do something good. Let's go to our third question. Yes, I think third question. Yes, question number three. Does God ever act illogically? Anybody? You go with a no. I agree. I go with a yes. Go with a yes. Okay. Listen here. After be listening to a few of these questions, you know you're both right, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
There's no secret. There's no secret that you go through anything in life. Pick an experience, pick a year, pick a life, pick a style. There's always questions unanswered. Our lives offer no shortage of inexplicable, inexplicable events and seemingly senseless tragedies. Sometimes the passage of time helps us see the silver lining of what happened, but many times there are things we'll never understand. But being that it's God's world, He is the creator of the universe, runs every stroke of it, and therefore we ask, how does this all make sense? Where's the logic in it? So the philosophical answer that you're going to say is, yes, there's logic. But just because something is logical, it doesn't mean I understand it. Not only that, that forget about God's logic. Many people have logic that I don't understand. It doesn't mean it's illogical. It may be difficult to comprehend. And maybe this is, you know, look in today's society. You have an iPhone. Do you understand why the iPhone does all the things that it does? I know I push one, two, three, and I get what I want. But do I understand all the nuances and why it does things and how it does things? I'm not the, the inventor. I'm not the physicist or the, or the, no, the electrons, what's going on over there. But the bottom line is, when we look at the world around us, there are many different things, although it's difficult to understand what's behind it. The bottom line is, God sees the larger picture, and because God sees the larger picture, He takes into account many factors maybe that we don't understand, but there are factors. So what we see over here, bottom line is, that there, God may be illogical, but just because it's illogical to us, doesn't mean that it's illogical. Let's see. The following text makes the very point and says as follows. This is from Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik. says as follows. Text number nine. Certainly the testimony of the Torah regarding creation that is very good is true. However, this is only stated from the unbound perspective of the Creator. In man's finite limited view, the absolute good in creation is not apparent. The contrast is striking and undeniable. To what might be the situation be compared to a person who views a beautiful tapestry? The work of a fine artisan, which contains woven into its front a representation dazzling to the eye. To our great sorrow, we see the image, the world. For the adverse side, can such a sight become sublime, hysteric experience. Thus, we are incapable of comprehending the panorama of reality, without which one cannot uncover God's master plan. The essence of the work of the Holy One. What over here we see is, that what we have to recognize, and this takes a great sense of humility, to recognize and see that we only see part of the picture. We only see the beautiful tapestry. Or we only see the back, if you want to say, I'm sorry, the back of the tapestry. All the knots and everything, all the yarn flying all over the place. We don't necessarily see the beautiful picture in the front. But God, who is sewing and putting this beautiful tapestry together, knows exactly what this picture is all about. But that comes with, of course, a lot of humility and somebody who has to recognize and say, yes, God knows what's going on. He's orchestrating this with great intelligence and therefore I know what's happening. So, so far when we talk about things about God in this course, we've said no, but yes. That no, he's not involved, but yes, he is involved. Today, in this one, we're going to have to say yes, but no. While it makes you same good, and it may, may make you feel good to say that everything's logical, it's actually illogical 
to assume that everything is logical. I know I sound like I'm twisting my words, but put it this way. Who created logic? God. So what you're trying to say is that God is limiting himself to the logic that he created. To say that God is always logical means that God is creating a limit for himself. That means God who created logic says, I only want to be logical. That's what it means to say that God is always logical. So therefore we must say that God is illogical. Because if so, then God is limiting himself. And God, we know, is unlimited. is not bound by any type of logic. So therefore, now that we've come to the conclusion that God is illogical, let's try to figure this out. And over here we have an example of what we might mean that God prioritizes another value over logic. In the following medrash we're going to read is an allegorical conversation between the Jewish people and several different entities. And listen to this conversation. Pretty fascinating. Wisdom asks, text number 10, Wisdom asks, what should be the consequence for one who has sinned? Wisdom responded, evil pursues sin. Prophecy asks, what should be done? What should be the consequence for one who has sinned? Prophecy responded, "One who has sinned will die." The Torah asks, "What should the consequence for one who has sinned?" The Torah responded, "Let them bring a guilt offering, and they will be forgiven." God was asked, "What should the consequence for one who has sinned?" God responded, "Let them do teshuva, repent, and they will be forgiven." This is the meaning of the verse, God is good and just and therefore directs the sinners on the way, meaning he shows sinners the path of teshuvah. So let's understand this conversation for a moment. What's the significance of this conversation? Secondly, presuming that all of these answers are correct, because after all, the Torah responds, wisdom responds, they're all verses that are mentioned from Proverbs, prophecy is correct. Why do they all have different answers if they're all correct to the same question? And then to the extent that God is the one that answers. That means all the other ones God doesn't agree with. How does this work out here? Hasidism explains that all these answers are actually a matter of perspective. That each one of these answers are given according to the perspectives of that we were asked. For example, the first response cites a book of Proverbs. Who wrote the book of Proverbs? King Solomon, the wisest of all men. Proverbs, wisdom, is the embodiment of actual knowledge, wisdom of the way it is. Pure wisdom. Without any emotions, without any rationale, but just logic the way it is. The consequence of a transgression is inescapable. What do you mean? You did something wrong. Why do you, why do, you do something wrong? Because it's evil. There's no way of getting out of it. It's like saying, I ate poison, what's my consequence? That's it. It's like, do I have to be a brain doctor to figure that out? No. So you did something wrong. You did evil. You did something wrong. Why are you doing something wrong? There's no way out of it. That's wisdom. Looks at it exactly the way it is. Prophecy is a perspective that it comes from God. What is prophecy? Prophecy is, especially over here we're talking, the prophecy that was voiced by Hezekiel, is unforgiving. Conceptually, prophecy represents the idea of complete abnegation of ego, total devotion of God, 
From this point, if a person sins, what are they doing? They're cutting themselves off from God. And therefore, he considers it a betrayal. And he says, what is a sin? It's death. Finished. You cut yourself up. One shall die. Because the moment you sin, you cut the string that connects you with God. That's what prophecy is. The absolute holiness. That or nothing. Then you come to the Torah. The Torah does incorporate ways of how a person can take care of his past misdeeds. The Torah has layers. There's mitzvahs, there's transgressions. If I do it by mistake, if I do it on purpose, what the different consequences may be. And the same way we find by all different types of transgressions, if a person, for example, stole something, he's able to repent by returning it and paying a fine. So too, if I do the sin, I bring a sin offering. You did something, there's something to counter it. That's what the Torah is all about. So everyone is a matter of perspective. However, when it comes to God, God gives us a completely different answer. God gives an answer about the shuva repentance. What does re- repentance mean? Repentance is in a completely different plane of everything else. Repentance exists in a way that our relationship between God defies logic. Our relationship between God doesn't, there's something that's beyond logic. You did something wrong, right? You think there's a consequence. What does God say? Repent. Not only when you repent, when you do Teshuvah, it's as if you never sinned before. The relationship is still intact. It's not like saying, well, just say you're sorry and move on. It's not logical. It doesn't make sense. Teshuvah means that I have an opportunity to repair a relationship and be even better than I was before. Does it make sense? That's where God comes along. I'm illogical. Every one of them, if you can look, you see in the figure 2.1. The figure 2.1 over here says, brings the wisdom, evil pursues sin, the rationale, every act has an inevitable natural consequence, prophecy, again, it's a spiritual death, Torah, but God, you do teshuva and you're forgiven because your connection with God, our relationship with God, is not mediated by any logic. Why is that? Because only God can do that. Because of God's great love for the Jewish people. God is devoted unconditionally. And as a result, his behavior to the Jewish people is irrational as well. The irrational behavior that God has as a relationship with the Jewish people is something beyond our understanding and therefore I can sin and also then correct it. Now just because it's irrational, it doesn't mean it's unreasonable. There's a difference between irrational and unreasonable. Not all forms of irrational are unreasonable. For example, the love you have for your family, for your children, the deepest values in our faith, despite logic, are not because of logic. It doesn't make sense. But we still love our children. We still are connected to our faith in a way that's beyond our understanding. Because of that, so for example, there are differences. You talk about unconditionally being devoted to your business partner. That's illogical. Because your business partner is a logical business. You invested with an individual because you have what it brings to the table. They have what it brings to the table. And together, you're there to make money. If you're not making money, there's no reason to have the partner. It's a logical relationship. You don't say I'm unconditionally, irrationally related to my business partner. On the other hand, a parent to a child is unconditional relationship. It's a relationship which is 
not something which has a rationale, not something you can explain. On the contrary, if there is a condition in the relationship, forget about that relationship. Forget about the child and the parent ever talking to each other if they think that it's conditioned on something. The parent's ability to be selfless and giving to the child in an irrational way, without any reason. It's not rational, but it's both beautiful and reasonable. Nobody's going to say it's unreasonable. And therefore, when we talk about the irrational love that God has for the Jewish people, is beautiful and reasonable that God has for us, and therefore God is our Father. Avinu Malkinu is our Father and our King. And because of that, he has an irrational love for the Jewish people. And therefore, should we do something wrong? He says, repent. you got a way to fix it. The relationship is not harmed. You can always come back. There's a very powerful lesson in all this. While logic is a very useful tool, it's not everything. And therefore, it's not the albeit or the end all. In certain situations, logic is very limiting, and we have to be able to go beyond logic. And where is that? And this idea is illustrated by a sin that happened with the Jewish people right at the beginning of times. God gives the Jewish people the Ten Commandments. Not even 40 days later, the Jewish people sin and abrogate the second of the Ten Commandments. They sin with the golden calf. Moses comes to God and says, please, forgive the Jewish people. They didn't mean it. And what is Moses' answer? What is Moses' argument? Look in text number 11a. Moses pleaded, God, if I have found favor in your eyes, may you go in our midst, for they are a stiff-necked people. So pardon our wickedness and our sin and take us in as your inheritance. Please explain to me Moses' argument. I am not a lawyer by any stretch. I'm not here, to, I'm not a defense attorney. But if you were to stand up in a court of law and say, my dear judge, this fellow broke the law, but you know why? He's stubborn, so therefore let him off. Since when is that an excuse? Moses comes to God and says, the Jewish people, they're stiff-necked, and therefore you forgive them. And therefore, just because they're stiff-necked, they should get off? I just told them 40 days ago they shouldn't serve any idols. And over here they go and serve an idol. So what if they're stubborn? What does in stubborn help me? How does stubborn change the reality? And therefore, text 11b, the Alter Rebbe explains. First Chabad Rebbe says as follows. This will follow, those, the, the will of those who fear him. This is the will of transcendence, God-given wisdom. The pristine will and spirit of dedication of those whose hearts are inspired and engaged in a wholesome service to bring gratification to their creator. Regarding this it will state it, for they are stiff-necked people and you will pardon. For pardon similarly transcends wisdom and is illustrated by our sages' teaching they asked wisdom. Moses requested that God respond to their transcendent dedication with transcendent pardon. Essentially, what Moses was saying as follows. Yes, God, they messed up. They messed up royally. But don't give up on them that quickly. Because they're stubborn. They're stiff-necked people. And that actually is amazing quality. Because this nation that you took out of Egypt, 
their irrational relationship to you, God, is that no matter what, even if logic says they should not be serving you, they should forget about you, they'll still be there with you. Now look at the Jewish people throughout the ages. Any person logically looking at the Jewish people through the ages don't understand why the Jewish people are still sticking with God. We're probably the most persecuted nation on earth. And still today they're the most religious Jews ever. People with the most belief in God ever. Why? Does it make sense? It's irrational. Because we're stubborn. We're stiff-necked. Well, Moses was telling the Jewish people, was telling God, forgive them. You know why forgive them? Yes, they did something irrational. But guess what? Their relationship with you is irrational. They're stubborn. They're stiff-necked. There's no way you can explain it. There's a fabulous story, and this is the one of many wrote about during the Holocaust. It was Yom Kippur in the Januska concentration camp. And as Yom Kippur is getting close, many of the inmates in the concentration camp were concerned that they won't be able to observe Yom Kippur properly. And as you, you know, that during these special holidays, especially Yom Kippur, the Germans, they would look to be able to torment the Jews even more on their holidays to make sure they're not able to observe it. And as you know, there was many Jewish people who were the agents of the Germans. They were known as the Kapos. And they were responsible to be and to make sure the Jews do whatever they got to do. In this concentration camp, there was a fellow that were known as the Blozhever Rebbe. His name was Rabbi Yisrael Spiro. And he was asked by the followers and by the many Jews that were there if he can speak to Schweiss, who was the Kapo, if he can let them off on Yom Kippur and not give them work that may desecrate the holy day. So, thinking that he might get shot for it, but whatever it may take, listen, the choices were slim regardless of whether there was any salvation coming any other way. So he said, he approached him, and Shwai said, listen here, I don't have proper respect for traditions, but he told him, listen here, there's a, the Rebbe, the Blozhever asked them, it's cold Nidri night, there's a small group of young Jews, and they're asking if these small group of Jews, if just the day of Yom Kippur, they can be let alone, that they won't have to do any work, which would mean that they would abrogate the holy day. The next day he listened to them, and he said, listen, I'll do what I can. The next day he calls them over, and he takes, the, takes them to the SS quarters, there's a big large wooden room there, and he says, okay, you guys are going to be here for Yom Kippur. He gave the Rebbe a dry rag. He says, you can wash the windows with this dry rag so you won't be doing any work. That's considered on Yom Kippur. And everybody else will be responsible to clean the floor, but you don't have to use any detergent or any rags, and you'll, that will be your job. Okay. And that's what they did. It was about noon, and the door opens, and a bunch of SS men storm in in their black uniforms, followed by a loaded food cart, and they yell at the Jews, Eat! And the Jews stand still. They don't eat. And again, the SS officer pushes the food cart, loaded food cart, and says, Eat! And they said, We don't eat. Nobody moved. The rabbi remained on the ladder, cleaning the windows there. The Hasidim were on the floor. Finally, the SS officer calls the Schneiss, who is the capo, and he tells them, and he says, Schneiss, 
If these dogs don't eat, I'm going to kill you. Because he was the one that was in charge, the capo. To which the capo stands up, Schneis comes to the SS leader and he says, today is the Jews' holy day and they don't eat on Yom Kippur. The SS officer takes out his pistol and says, I'll kill you for them. And killed him. The Hasidim and the Rebbe are standing there, bewildered, not realizing what they just saw. Over here, a Jew who believed in nothing, to the extent he was a kapo, gave his life for the sake of God, not to give up Yom Kippur. Over here, you have a Jew in the concentration camp. That you call rational. That's where the stubborn neck comes in. This is what Moshe was telling the Jewish people. Yes, they are a stiff-necked people. Yes, they are a people that sinned just 40 days after hearing the Ten Commandments. But guess what? Despite the persecutions, despite the exiles, despite the expulsions, they will never abandon their connection, their relationship with God. We have an irrational attachment to God. And because we have a rational attachment to God, it's not limited based on our logic. And for that reason, our observance in the Torah, we don't not kill, not steal based on logic. Because today logic says like this, the Germans, for example, were the most logical people in the world. And look where it had them. The greatest scientists, theorists, um, whatever you want to call it, all came from Germany. And they went and killed six million people. Logic derails. What Moshe was telling the Jewish people is because despite our logic, that's our connection to the Jewish people. Not all rational behavior, irrational behaviors are harmful. On the contrary, sometimes the irrational behavior is what keeps you connected and related. And in this case, Moshe was saying, this insanity allows us to live a higher life. The irrational behavior wasn't stupid irrationality can be behavior. Has you doing negative things that you should be doing better. But there's a form of insanity that allows you to live your life on a higher plane, on a different level. You don't get affected by the world. Think of it. If I walk around with my yarmulke and my tzitzit and I'm proud, I couldn't give to hoot when anybody says. It's a irrational behavior. Maybe I shouldn't be care. But because I'm stubborn, because we're stiff-necked, because I know when Jews came across to America in the boat and they were told if you don't keep Shabbat, you lose your job, irrational behavior is what kept them going. Rational, they would have dropped everything. Rational behavior, there wouldn't be Judaism today. So our relationship with God is irrational. God's relationship with, with us is irrational. So to answer our question from the beginning, does God ever act illogically? God acts logically. He always acts logically. We may not understand it, but then also, God also acts illogically. Because of his close relationship with us, like a parent to a child, it's an irrational relationship. So to our relationship with God is irrational. So he has two modalities, the logical and the illogical, and they're both correct. Let's go now to our next question. Question number four. Why does God have so many names? You know the scabai, you know what a gabai is, right? The guy that's in charge of giving out the alias walks over to a fellow in shul and he asks him, what's your name? So he goes, says, Dov Ben Esther. 
So he says, that's not what I'm looking for. Well, he says, I'm sorry. He says, Esther ben Dov. He says, what's going on here? Why are you telling me a woman's name? I'm asking your name. Mm-hmm. So he says, well, things have been going bad. I start putting everything in my wife's name. <laughs> but imagine you're hosting an event and a new face shows up. He asks the guy, what's your name? So he goes, well, when I'm nice to people, they call me Joe. When I'm mean to people, they call me Charlie. And when I'm in between or having a bad day, they call me Mo. What's your name? Which one is it? What is God's name? Well, here's a narrative, and you try to figure out what God's name is. Text number 12a. Text number 12a, God introducing himself to the Jewish people. Elohim spoke to Moses and told him, I am Yudke Vavke. Havaya, we'll call it for now. Okay? Okay, so God, so now we hear God says, what's his name? Let's just in this verse. Elohim spoke to Moses and told him, I am Havaya. So which was his name? Elohim or Havaya? Let's try to figure it out. But then he goes a little further. It's not done yet. Verse number two, text number 12b. I appeared to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob as Kel Shakai. And I did not make myself known to them by the name Yudke Vavke Havaya. So in two verses, God is identified as Elikim, known to the patriarchs as Kel Shakai, and introduced himself as Havaya. We're not saying God's name, because since as we're soon going to read, we don't say God's name the way it is properly, as of respect, only unless we're actually saying the verse. So therefore, we're just going to use these type Elikim, Kel Shakai, or Havaya. So which one is it? Which is his name? You know the story in Chelm about this guy walks over to a fellow and asks him, what time is it? And he says, what he says is four o'clock. So he says, I don't understand something. I've been asking people all day what time it is and always getting different answers. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> so, but what's going on here? Why does God have so many different names? Let's understand. The Torah, as we see in many other liturgies, and you're sure you can see it in your prayers, always is using different names for God. So which one is it? And as you recall in our encounter last week with Moshe and God, God asks Moshe, what's your name? And what did God tell him last week? We learned it again. I is what I is. Tell us what I is. What does that mean? What is God telling you? Let's see it in text number 13. Text number 13. God responded to Moses, I will be what I will be. Rabbi Abba ben Mami explained, God told Moses, you are seeking to identify my name. My name reflects my actions. And I am therefore known at times as Kel Shakai, Tzvakai, Salikim, or Avaya. When I judge my creations, I'm called Alikim. When I wage war against evildoers, I'm called Tzvakais. When I suspend the retribution individuals deserve for their sins, I'm called Kel Shakai. And when I act compassionately with my world, I'm called Yudke Vavke, Havaya. Now, it seems like God's answer over here seems evasive. I'm asking you a question. What's your name? When I'm nice, I'm called this thing. When I'm this, I'm called another name. Which one? What is God saying? It's, it's different frequencies. Oh, different. So I ask you your name, not your frequency. It depends on the situation and what the person... But what's God? Is that God's name, or is there a frequency? So God just says, "It's attribute." But that's an attribute then. So let's find out. And what happens over here is, 
Well, God is answering, and the question is, why couldn't God answer straightforward and clear? And the answer is because, going back to what we said before, where were the Jews in Egypt? What were the Jews accustomed to? Idolatry. What is idolatry? Every single attribute has another God, has another idol, has another type of relationship. What does God tell Moses to tell the Jewish people? I am what I will be. I am one singular person. I'm beyond names. I'm not a name. I'm beyond names. No name really defines who God is because God is transcendent. What the names are, particularly how I am referred to and how you can identify me, is based on the relationship, as you said, as the attribute of what we're doing. So what God is saying, technically, I have no name. In fact, the reason is because God has no names, because what is a name? A name is an adjective, if you want to call it. If you don't know a person's name, what are you going to say? The guy in the kitchen, the guy that's standing here, the guy that has red shirt? What are you basically doing? Describing. God has no name, so what we're technically doing by saying all these different names, we are describing who God is, which is why there are so many. Because God has multiple different things that he does. And based on the things that he does, we will then refer to him on those names. Yes? Well, if, if there's a name, it can be disputed also. What do you mean by that? Well, what color is that wall? Like, people will say blue, but we all see that blue differently. So okay. if God had a name, well, we, by the, we would all hear it differently, we would all say it differently, it would be different in different languages. But to just exact to your point, the moment I give something a name, the moment I say that's blue, but it's not a name. You see, the, different, the difference is blue is not a name, it's an adjective. A name has nothing to do. Nobody can argue. It's like the guy that came to town, like we said this last week, he said, calls himself Chaim, and after a month he says, ha ha ha, I tricked you all. My name is really Moshe. Did it really make a difference? If you live in an island... Do I have to have a name? No. A name is basically reference for somebody else. That's why God doesn't need a name, because God is everything. God doesn't need a name, is beyond the name. God doesn't need a name. God is basically all the names that we have for God are not names, they're verbs. They're things He's doing at the time. And therefore, when we talk about God, which is why there are so many names of God, is because... And if you can look in figure 2.2, we're not going to go through all of them, but you see there's multiple two things of God, and each one of them have a different reference for the way God does something. The entire conversation about God's name actually comes into play every time we recite a blessing. Blessings, as we call, are called brachot. They're a staple of Jewish prayer. We say them before we daven, we say them while we daven, we say them when we eat, we say them when we learn. And what's the blessings? Most blessings begin with the following. Baruch Atah Hashem Elokeinu Melech Olam. What does it mean, Baruch Atah Hashem Elokeinu Melech Olam? So many people think that until I get to the word Hashem, Elokeinu, I actually haven't said anything about God. But actually, on the contrary. Baruch, which means to bless, doesn't only mean to bless. The word Baruch in Hebrew comes from Hamavrich, I am drawing down. What am I drawing down into this world? Atah. Atom means you. You, God, in your essence without a name. I am bringing down into this world you, God, who is higher than a name. Then to Havayu, who is the transcendent creator, into Elohim, who invests himself in nature, Melech HaOlam, king of the universe. So you understand that every single time you're making a blessing, you're not just making a blessing and saying God's name, which is the third letter, the third word, 
but actually Ata, which means you, is even higher than God's name. Yes? So we're blessing it by infusing God into it. Into we're this world. Correct. So when we make a blessing on a, on a, on a mitzvah, let's throw a take for the mitzvah, I'm saying that this mitzvah now has a spiritual quality that the great godliness of God is being drawn down from spiritual into this physical action. Whether it's lighting the Shabbat candles, hearing the shofar, making the blessing on the bread, whatever it may be, that this is no longer a simple piece of bread because it has the greatest level of spirituality into it. What do I see from here? So let's just uh, conclude this concept. Why does God have so many names? Bottom line, to recap. Number one, he doesn't have so many names. He's nameless. God is nameless. Why then does it seem like he has so many names? His many names refer to his interactions with his creations. Let's go to our final question for today. And this is a question that I probably get many times, especially after people get literature from us, or emails, and things like this, which is, what's up? with the hyphenation of God's name. Why don't we spell out God's name as G-O-D-Y-0-G-D? Well, many of you are familiar with the concept of a hyphen. I don't know how many people are so proficient in the nuances of the English composition. And there's a decent chance that, in the, that we almost in every sentence we misuse a punctuation. But in many cases, I'm sure if you were to take any word and put a hyphen instead of a main letter that belongs in the world, you probably got a minus from your English teacher in school. So why is it that we find that many times God's name is hyphenated? And we'll find the answer when we talk about this following introduction. In next week's Torah reading, Isaac wants to bless his children, Jacob and Esau. And Jacob comes in instead of Esau, and all of a sudden, he says, the voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. What does it mean? Did he recognize his voice? If he recognized his voice, why did he say the hands are the hands of Esau? And the commentaries explain because Jacob came inside and what Jacob was doing, he asked Jacob, he asked the individual, he didn't know he was blind, he said, he asked the individual, what got you here so quick? And the individual answered, well, God made me find my prey quickly. He knew that Esau doesn't use the words of God doesn't attribute it to God. So he said, it must be Jacob. The concept, the idea of using God in our language, in our sentences, in our verbiage, was something new. Was something that only Jacob did. The Baal Shem Tov, as I mentioned this many times, was somebody who went around and saw simple people, no matter whatever level of Jew they may be, and always asked them, how are you? So they should be able to answer, Baruch Hashem, thank God, with the help of God, always to have God on our lips. That is a custom of Jewish people. The voice of God wasn't always. The voice of Jacob was always to have God's name even whenever you're speaking. But that wasn't always the plan. The Greeks, after the, after, at the time of the story of Hanukkah, they tried to extinguish this type of language. They tried to ban the Jews from constantly referring to God. Because it was all about themselves. The selfish all pagan type of religion to all their idolatry, whatever it may be. And once the Hashmanoim, those victors of Hanukkah, were able to clean out Jerusalem of the Greeks, 
and the Assyrian army, they instituted that they should have the word of God in every single document. Look in text number 15a. The Syrian Greeks decreed that the Jews were prohibited from uttering verbal references to God. Conversely, when the Hashmanayim government grew powerful and triumphant over the Syrian Greeks, they instituted the practice of mentioning God's name in every ordinary, even ordinary legal documentation, thereby became the custom to write in the year such and such of Yochan and the high priest, the sublime of God. The Hashmanayim monarchs instituted that Jews not only revert to mentioning God in day-to-day speech, but also in their writing, and even in their mundane documents, you would write a date, so it would say Monday, the 20th of Cheshvan, towards the year of the Kohen to God. And this was not only to make it the voice of Jacob, but also the pen of Jacob. This sounds amazing. And sounds like seemingly appropriate. Right? They tried to get us rid of mentioning God. We put it back. You know, you ever see, ever start up a dude, you try once, we'll put it in everything. You know, you try to take it out from saying it, we're going to make sure it's in every single statement from now on. But seemingly, the Talmud makes it clear that the sages were disappointed with this. And the sages actually wanted to revoke this new amendment from the Hashmanoyim. And you say, what? Rabbis are trying to revoke mentioning God? It sounds like vegetarians against tofu. Like, what's going on over here? Aren't rabbis supposed to be ones advocating for God? Let's find out. Text number 15b. When the sages heard about this practice, they protested. Once the debt is paid and the document's usefulness has expired, it will be thrown into the trash heap. The sages annulled the Hashmonayan ordinance and celebrated by establishing the date as a minor festival. What's going on? Which, uh, today, it's not, there were many minor festivals that are mentioned in the Talmud. The date that it actually happened was the 3rd of Tishri, which today is a fast day. Tzom Gedalia, the day after Rosh Hashanah. But in the Talmud, there were different festivals that happened in the Second Temple era, but which are not festivals that we celebrate today. So what's going on over here? How is it possible that the Greeks want to get rid of God's name? The Hashmanoyim put it back in. The rabbis come and get rid of it, not only get rid of it, and all of a sudden they're making a festival? So I don't know if you remember, in 1980s, there was a case by a fellow by the name known as Gregory Johnson. He burnt an American flag in Dallas, Texas, in protest to our government policies. And at the time, Texas law and 47 other states were that if you burn the flag, it's a year of prison, a year in prison plus a thousand dollar fine. He took it all the way up to the Supreme Court fighting for his free speech. And he actually won that the First Amendment protects him from burning the flag. We put our opinion, whether our opinions are constitutional question is irrelevant, but at the moment, that's what happened. What was important on both sides of the debate was that burning the American flag was more than just, uh, more than just incinerating a piece of polyester that had multiple colors on it, but everybody agreed and in the words of the dissent, which was Judge Rehnquist wrote, he says, the flag has become a visible symbol embodying our nations, and Americans regard it with almost a mystical reverence. People respect the flag. And that's why a few years ago, when somebody stepped on the flag, or stepping on the flag is considered a disrespect to the country, and that's why people want to use it as in protest in, in other countries when they burn a flag of a different country to show that they are, don't like that country. And it was actually precisely for that reason 
that Mr. Johnson wanted to burn the flag to show that he's upset at the policies of what was going on in Dallas, Texas. In fact, the U.S. flag code today advises Americans to be careful about how they dispose of the flag, calling it to be destroyed in a dignified way, whatever that means. For some people, it means not throwing it out with the trash. Some people means tying it in a bag and then putting it in the trash. But regardless of what it may be, be it as it may, the flag has a certain reverence. The flag symbolizes something greater than just a piece of polyester. The name of God is like God's flag. The name of God is something which shows the reverence of God. The name of God shows the divine power and something special to it. And therefore, the name of God, as we explained in the previous question, shows God's divine expressions in the way he has. And therefore, the sages understood that if somebody was going to take this, flag, this document that had God's name in it, and once they're finished paying their debt, throwing it in the garbage, it will show a disrespect and create a disrespect to God. Even more so. The sages tell us and the Torah tells us that one one of the Ten Commandments are we're not allowed to say God's name in vain. Saying God's name in vain is not only for an oath, but even, according to Jewish law, erasing God's name off a piece of paper. And for that reason, we see it in text number 16. It is forbidden to erase even a single letter from any of the seven divine names that are not to be erased. The The Talmud that we're telling us over here was that even though technically speaking, even though technically speaking at that time that we spoke about, was even if it would happen without the intention of the person who wrote God's name, but the person who then had the document, and then was going to take the document that said, and finish paying his debt, and by mistake even throw it into the garbage, this would be an abrogation against the Jewish law. And therefore, the sages at that time felt that if this was considered part of it, many times God's name would be erased for no reason and be mistreated, as we can see, so to speak, comparing it to the flag. For that reason, many Jewish communities, and it was then, that they would never write God's name complete, even in a language that is not in Hebrew, even though technically the actual prohibition is only seven God's name, the way it's written in Hebrew. That law extended itself, and it's even brought in code of Jewish law, it brings... Boga, which is the Russian word for it, for God, or Got, they would never write it. Gimel Aleph test, they'll write Gimel test. And therefore, the hyphen putting, just one second, putting the hyphen inside helps us see that and understand the importance of it, being that we don't even want to erase God's name. And therefore, the hyphen, that tiny mark, demonstrates our respect to our Creator. Yes? I was, I was kind of laughing to myself. I think you answered the question, but it's like, God is not actually one of God's names. Yes, but even though it's a translation... But, it, but it's, it's like... A, it's a, yes, because it's a translation... It's a, like you said, a different language. I'll tell you even more so. And where we because see... It represents. Not only it represents, we even... And this is a separate whole line of living. We don't have the time for today. But the concept, the very fact that you're allowed to pray in English and say God or Lord and so on tells you that there's sanctity to the name, even if it's another language. Or else, you wouldn't be able to pray in that language. So there is a sanctity to it. By writing it, it can become a problem if you're allowed to erase it. Therefore, whenever it is written, if it's not in a holy document, you will always find it hyphenated. 
There's even a debate, take it even more so, there's even a debate in writing the abbreviation of God's name, which one some were very careful. But that, being that we want, because there's a plus and a minus, you want to be able that people should constantly think about in earlier generations, where people were more God-fearing and God was more on their mind and not such an agnostic type of generation, maybe it wasn't as necessary. But as we know today, we live in a world where God is trying to be erased from every single thing, so therefore it is important that in all documents, and that's why you'll notice in every flyer that we put out on the top two letters, it says Beis Hey, which means Baruch Hashem, the blessed with God, with the grace of God. On your ketubah, it's there. On every document, you'll see that with the grace of God, with the help of God, that is because we try to instill that whatever we do, or whatever we say, that God should be, remind, we should be mindful of it, and we should always be a, a there. So the next time you encounter God, G-T, take the opportunity to remind yourself of the reverence of God, and that small dash reminds us of that we have the ability to connect as humans to a divine and a loving relationship to something, to the, uh, to the omnipresent, and, or <clears throat> and therefore, most importantly, we remember that God created us for a purpose, and we have to fulfill the purpose being in this world. So the function of the hyphen gives us a twofold function. Number one, it demonstrates our respect for the Creator, and then that hyphen you can lose out is that line that, so to speak, connects us with the one above. So just to recap, what's up with the hyphen of God? We avoid writing God's name on material that may be later defaced or discarded. Number two, it shows our reverence for God. Yes. So how come Lord is not hyphenated? Lord would be hyphenated as well, should be hyphenated. If it's written in a document that will maybe... In the Siddur it's not because the Siddur you're not throwing in the garbage. The Siddur has God's name even in Hebrew. Right. Because the Siddur you're praying from, it's not in the Chumash, but it will be in a periodical or in a newspaper or something that may, um, may be put in the trash, then it would say L-R-D, not have the O. Yeah. Hashem. Hashem is not God's name. Hashem means the name. The name. Yeah. There was a poem called The Dash. I don't know if you know it, but it was it was based on like on a on a, on a tombstone. There's the date the person was born and then oh the dash okay connecting them to two. So that's where you have it. So I was looking at this. It's like that dash represents it. So the hyphen, the connection of us and the in, infinite. In between the G and the D, it's okay. because it's all the aspects of what... Oh, very good. Cute. Okay. Let's just have a review on today's key points, and here we go. Lesson two. His nature. One. God is, by definition, beyond feelings. Nevertheless, God chose to create the world, and to relate to it, and to us, with emotions and feelings. Therefore, many Torah passages describe God expressing a variety of feelings towards us. 2. God gave us the power of generating His own feelings through choosing to reflect our feelings back to us. Therefore, when we act kindly, God acts with kindness towards us, etc. 3. God communicates with humanity in several formats. First and foremost, God communicated through the Torah, both the written and oral laws. God also communicates via prophecy. He further communicates with us individually via subliminal communications that cause us to experience unexpected inspiration. 4. 
God generally chooses to stick to the rules of logic that he created while reserving the option to act irrationally at times. An example of irrationality is the concept of divine atonement, through which God illogically pardons those who perform to Shubham. God's love for us is super rational, and we reciprocate in kind by being stiff-necked, illogically, and stubbornly devoted to God. God is essentially beyond any name definition. Divine names only identify God's behaviors. God is referred to with different names depending on his actions, with the diversity of action naturally giving rise to a plurality of names. 6. We revere God's names and would not want them to be erased, defaced, or discarded. Hence the traditional hyphen in God, a sign of our care and respect. Okay, so far, so the past two weeks we spoke about God's nature, his character. Next week we're transitioning and we're going to start talking about God's reasons and reasoning. For example, why did God create the universe and us? Does he really need us? Whatever reasons he has for creations, why did he choose to create evil? On that note, is it okay to question God? And lastly, what does it mean that God is wrathful and jealous? So join us next week, same time, same place. Yes.